Hello and welcome to the Bearded Tits podcast. I'm your host, Jack Perks, and this week I'm going to be talking to Tom Horton of Tunis UK. This is a project that is studying bluefin tuna off the British coastline. Now, I've mentioned tuna in around four podcasts, so to say that I'm excited to waffle about fish is an understatement. I'm always happy to waffle about fish. However, first, we're going to cover the news. Now, 60% of fish species could be unable to survive in current areas by 2100. 2100? 2100. However you say that year. If global warming reaches a worst-case scenario of 4 to 5 Celsius above pre-industrial temperatures, researchers have found. In a study of nearly 700 fresh and saltwater fish species, Researchers examined how warming water temperatures lower water oxygen levels, putting embryos and pregnant fish at risk. That scenario still puts fish which are also economically and ecologically important at risk, including Atlantic cod, swordfish, Pacific salmon, Alaska pollock and Pacific cod, which is used to produce frozen fish sticks. Some tropical fish are already living in zones that are at their uppermost tolerance already being 40 Celsius. Obviously, that's what leads to things like coral bleaching. So our seas, our rivers, our lakes are warming, and a lot of fish can't cope with this. It's not like other animals that can move further north. If you're a fish, you're stuck in the water. You can't go anywhere. So quite harrowing stuff. But one species that has returned to the British coastline is the bluefin tuna. And my guest is passionate about tuna. Now, Tom Horton is a PhD student at the University of Exeter and has been involved with the Tunis UK project from its inception. Now, we spoke a little bit about the history of tuna in the British seas, uh, their commercial value, some of them going for millions of pounds, and really what it involves to go out and, and try and find them. So it was an amazing chat to have with Tom. Here's how we got on. Thanks for joining me, Tom. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. No worry. So we have met before. You remember that? Was it at one of the, the, the events? It was, I think it was FSBI. They had a thing in Exeter. Oh, I think so. A few years ago. I don't know what it was. It was Steve Simpson. I don't, I'm, do you know Steve Simpson? Do you work with him? Uh, yeah, I'm kind of recalling. It was a And he, he introduced us because you, you came up to me and you're quite, a, you're quite a big guy. And you said, you know my girlfriend. And I shit myself. I was like, oh, Jesus Christ, what's, what's happened? And, and then he went, no, because you film with Nina. Because I did some work with Shad with, with Nina a few years ago. So I was like, yeah, oh, okay, right. that's all right then. I thought, um, I thought I was going to get in trouble for something I hadn't done. No, no, not at all, no. It was a few years ago, wasn't it? Was it that was a few years ago. I think it was yeah, 2017 yeah. or something like that. But obviously, since then, or you might have been doing work with Tuna then, but since then you've gone on to work for work on this project which is which is project thunus i don't know if i'm saying that right yeah it's, it's thunus uk but um it's a close it's always a, it's one that kind of divides apart because um yeah the, the h in it always messes with okay so before we get on to that just tell me a little bit about bluefin tuna bluefin are a large scombrid uh a large is probably uh, a bit of an understatement scombrids are teleos fish so they've got bony skeletons so they grow to sort of lengths in excess of 300 centimetres or three metres and weights in excess of 700 kilos. So I suppose if you wanted to uh, draw a comparison, it would probably be better drawing it to a small, small vehicle rather than an actual animal. But they're, so they're massive and they're famous for being quick. So very fast in the water, but they're almost also kind of infamous for having a fairly exorbitant price tag. So they are fished commercially. 
and they are a favorite food um, in, uh, as, as sushi, sashimi, so sushi sashimi. Since the sort of 1970s, 90% um, plus of bluefin that have been caught have, have gone to Japan and are eaten as sashimi. And, and as um, sashimi is obviously very small portions and high price tag per portion, um, individual fish can, can fetch really silly amounts of money. Um, so that's not made up then? You know when you see these news articles and they go, this fish was a million or whatever, that's not bullshit. They, they go for that, do they? No, that is not bullshit at all. No, um, it... <laughs> It is a little bit, it's never embellished, but it's, they use that kind of like highest priced fish as a sort of a baseline, which is obviously the wrong thing to do. Now what happens every year is um, each, well, bluefin are individually auctioned off at the Skiji fish market in Japan, Tokyo. And at the beginning of the season, so um, there's several different species of bluefin. Um, there's a Pacific species as well as an Atlantic species. Obviously I work on the Atlantic one being in the Atlantic. Um, but the Pacific species um, spawn off Japan. And at the beginning of the Japanese kind of fishing season marks the beginning of the auctioning season, which kind of coincides with uh, the beginning of the year. So the first fish to be auctioned off is always prestigious. Uh, and there's a gentleman who owns a, um, a chain. Every year, he refuses to let up on bidding for this first kind of like prestigious fish. And that's how they end up with these uh, these. these bonkers price tags which is sort of seven million dollars for one individual fish uh, now if, if they were to do that for every single fish i don't know what the exact figure is um but the the price per unit of sushi like per mouthful would be in the thousands rather than anything else so he he 100 percent makes a loss on that fish every single year it's always the same guy he just does it because he just wants to be the one to have the first tune. Yeah, exactly. So I suppose that, you know, if you were a, uh, a sushi aficionado and you were wanting to go and get the best sushi, then you'd probably go, right, well, you know, who cares about it enough to pay, to pay several million dollars for a fish every single year and make a loss on it? And maybe you go there. I don't know. But it seems to work for him because he, he does it on a regular basis. That's bonkers. Absolutely bonkers. Um, am I right in saying that they're one of the few warm-blooded fish? Yes, that's right. They are endothermic. So they sort of share that ability. There's about 30 different species of fish which can do it. So typically, obviously, you're right. Fish are what we know as ectothermic. And what that means is essentially their, their blood temperature mimics that of the water or, or the kind of environment around. And bluefin tuna, some lamnid sharks, so corb eagles and white sharks can also do it. Um, some species of swordfish have the ability to keep their blood temperature warmer, um, which affords them sort of several sort of super abilities um, so with warmer blood uh, means they can increase their muscle output means they can swim faster for longer longer periods of times and their peak muscle output so their peak strength uh, would be proportionally higher than it would be if their blood, blood was cooler they can also digest food quicker so if they're warmer then their, their enzymes in their stomach can act faster uh, to work quicker to digest food and and that's important because actually, if you think about a big fish like a bluefin, um, and bluefin have to uh, eat somewhere between 5 and 15% of their body weight every single day just to sort of meet their, their metabolic demands, they might not encounter prey all the time. So, you know, good stuff like, you know, bluefin, and you see on Blue Planet or something like that, that these fish find bait balls and there becomes this big feeding frenzy. Well, those bait balls aren't easy to come across in a lot of places. So it actually makes sense if a bluefin can kind of digest food fast and then come back for more, yeah, otherwise the bait was gone. Uh, and then additionally, some of the, the final one, 
is that they can actually inhabit cold, colder places. And that really kind of um, underlines a little bit of why the north. Um, so contrary to popular belief, actually, uh, it isn't sort of a northward range expansion seeing bleeding off the British Isles. Uh, and in fact, they've been seen much, much further north than this, off the coast of Iceland and even oh, wow. Norway. Um, yeah, and that's a sort of long-standing thing. So these kind of warm-blooded fish can actually go to areas where it's particularly cold. And they can also dive deep as well. Obviously, it's much deeper and it's much colder in deeper waters. And bluefin are, are fantastic divers as well as long-distance migrants. So long-winded answer to your question. <laughs> but they are warm-blooded and it's pretty neat. <laughs> Definitely. Uh, so what's their history in the UK? Because as I... I've only looked into it a little bit, but they they were well. There was a fishery for them, I think, at one point, and then that sort of collapsed. I don't know if they completely disappeared. I mean, you all know a lot more than me, but then they've sort of come back now. So, what? Yeah, what's the history of them? Yeah, so you're right. So there was um, an aristocratic sports fishery uh, for Atlantic bluefin tuna off uh, the northeast coast, so off um, off Scarborough, and that developed in the 1930s. Developed quickly, and uh, people flocked from all over the world to try and catch a glimpse or try and catch one of the elusive, they call them the Yorkshire tunnies. And in fact, uh, a lesser known point is that the United Kingdom actually held a world record for a rod and line caught bluefin tuna, which we, the gentleman that um, set that caught fish actually took the record from a guy in uh, Nova Scotia. I can't remember how big the fish was, several hundred kilos, but massive animals. But you're absolutely right. So the, the fishery kind of collapsed quite spectacularly uh, in 1953 and the fish were essentially not ever really seen again after that season and in fact I think to this day we as part of the Tunis UK project we, we collect sightings from, uh, from well from anywhere in fact people are uh, welcome to submit sightings via our website which is www.tunisuk.org and we've yet to hear of bluefin being seen off the Yorkshire coast recently. Isn't that no, weird that there was um that there was so many off Yorkshire and then they've just never not recovered. It's strange, isn't it? Yeah, it's, um, it is weird. There are a couple of caveats to it. So the first one is that um, the, the Yorkshire tunny was only ever really sort of found because of the commercial herring fishery. So at that period of time, there was, um, well, it was the commercialisation of, of herring fishing. So steam vessels would, would steam off 20 to 40 miles offshore to the herring grounds and they would fish for herring. And in the, so the, the late 1920s, reportedly, the herring fishing boats would actually complain that the tuna were there. So they'd sort of report back about these, these monstrous nuisance fish that were just kind of in the way. And they sort of the story got back to a few fishermen. And then the, the fishermen would actually go out, sort of with the, the, the aristocratic guys would go out with the, the herring fishing, fishing boats, which are big, sort of 15 to 20 metre steamers. And they'd use that as a mothership and they'd launch a small skiff and they'd kind of, they'd actually just chuck a, chuck a hooked bait in the water by the herring boat and the tuna would come and take it. And they'd launch this small skiff and essentially what would happen is that the, kind of the wealthy gentleman on the, rod, on the rod at one end of the, the skiff would hold on to the tuna and then a, a young man at the other end would do the majority of the work but using his oars. So he'd paddle against the direction the tuna was swimming and they'd just kind of do that until the tuna knackered out. But that, this sort of digressing, that herring fishery collapsed as well. Um, so tuna don't spawn off the British Isles, not that we know. Um, so they're here to, to feed and they're sort of here to try and find about some about five to fifteen percent of their body weight every single day. And um, you know, you would 
surmise that if the food that they're here to eat disappeared, then they, they possibly they might, might come back. Additionally, there was a commercial fishery for them uh, in the North Sea at the time. So several nations, so Germany, the United Kingdom to a small degree, but mainly Nordic fisheries. So um, Germany, Norway, Sweden, Denmark, um, all fished bluefin quite heavily. And I mean, it wasn't just they, they disappeared from the Yorkshire coast, they disappeared from the whole North Sea. It, it, the reason that it is still interesting is that actually bluefin have recently reappeared uh, back to Nordic regions, so Sweden, Denmark, coast of Norway, but we are yet, yet to see them in any sort of appreciable numbers um, off the northeast coast. However, and sort of as sort of the work of Tanis UK project um, suggests, uh, that there's actually there are an awful lot off seasonally off the southwest, so off, off of Atlantic facing coasts. So it's likely that they are in the North Sea. It's just maybe they're not being sighted yet, or I mean, it's a it's a big place, isn't it? So <laughs> it is, yeah. It's a big place, and you know, um, you could probably split it up into several different eco regions if you wanted. Um, I'd say actually they are in the North Sea, but they're not off the Scarborough coast. Okay. Um, so they, you know, the waters are between uh, Sweden and Denmark. So the um, the Kattegat, which is sort of an inch, not really sure, but surrounded body of water uh, adjacent to the North Sea in the northeast. Bluefin uh, have been sighted there for the last four or five years and incidentally there's a sort of a tagging program which we collaborate with uh, just up there working on bluefin tuna and reports back are generally that you know bluefin are back in, in fairly appreciable numbers. Just how many there are? It's a million dollar question <laughs> literally as we were just talking yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so so you've mentioned so what is Project Thunus then what what's the uh, what's the kind of uh, I was saying what's the point that sounds a bit sharp but what what is the you know what, what what's what's it for? Thunus UK is an um, uh, inter-organisational collaborative research program uh, on Atlantic Bluefin and tuna and it's between CFAS and the CFAS project leads are David Wrighton and Jeroen van Kouge and so CFAS is the Centre for Environment, Fisheries and Agriculture Science. The University of Exeter, um, and so my colleagues Matthew Witt and Lucy Hawkes um, run the project here. Uh, and additionally, we work with um, the Tuna Research and Conservation Centre of uh, Stanford University, and as I was saying, uh, colleagues in Denmark and Sweden as well. And really, the, the purpose of the Tunis UK project is to provide a baseline understanding of Atlantic bluefin tuna off the coasts of the British Isles, um, which was previously lacking. And the reason for the project sort of being established, um, sort of, the, the, sort of the rationale, I suppose, is that for the first time in probably a generation, uh, bluefin were have been regularly sighted from about 2014 onwards, um, and we just didn't know very much about them. And so we put together a proposal uh, and sort of proposed it to, to government. So we're funded by DEFRA, which had funding from the European Maritime and Fisheries Fund. And yeah, in 2018, we set about yeah, trying to find out a little bit more. Amazing. So how how has the angling community responded to the return of bluefins? Because you can imagine a lot of them kind of wetting their lips over all these bloody great big fish coming back to, to the British coastline. Uh, I think that's probably fair to say. Yeah. And um, <laughs> I mean, the angling community, I think how have they responded? Probably... I think it's fair to say they responded in a manner as you'd expect an angler community to to respond. They they want to go out and catch them. Um, I think the it's fair to say that um, to our knowledge, most people aren't necessarily interested in going out and sort of contributing to this commercial fishery. And it's it's more of a, 
from, from the people that we interact with, people want to go and catch and release these fish. And, you know, catch and release angling has, has many virtues. Um, one of the kind of additional goals of the Tunnish UK project at the moment is actually just to have a look at how the whole kind of catch and release, not to look at a viability of a fishery, but just to sort of provide that information if people were to be interested in it. How do we do that? One of the main goals about the Tunnish UK project was to look at onward migrations and behaviour of bluefin once they left our shores and also to ask questions such as you know how long do they spend uh, for instance in the English Channel where do they go when they leave here do they enter known spawning regions which is how we might be able to assign a, a bluefin tuna here to a stock of origin so we actually had to go and work with the angling community to be able to catch tuna to put electronic tags on them to be able to track the onwards movements or their behavior so the whole capture process is something that we've all um as it's part of the scientific team have had to learn over the last few years so we've learned a lot in that respect and um, the, the fishermen that we work with have been incredibly receptive to the science that we're doing as well and most people are really fascinated because i suppose ultimately they are pretty radical fish <laughs> that's yeah that's an understatement they are incredible aren't they but and is it am i right in saying that they are they're illegal for anglers to target they can't go out and specifically get them can they yeah it's a great point which we should uh, absolutely um, make very clear is that it is illegal to, for anglers to go and target these fish so we work um, under a specific catch derogation from the marine management organization and additionally as part of our kind of scientific license which um, institutions have and then um, our project leaders have have personal licenses to go and conduct work um, as per the uk home office we are incredibly careful to make sure that welfare of the animal is the highest standard possible um, so every step of the process that we take from when a, from how the fishermen go and fish to then how long the fish spend on the hook to the gear you know you actually use to catch the, the animal then how long how you bring it towards the boat and then how you do the tagging and how you release it and revive it so we're very very careful to, to a make sure how we're interacting with the animal is is the most sympathetic possible whilst still being able to achieve our scientific aims but then also to be continually learning um so we review everything that we're doing at the end of each season sorry during the season and at the end of the season and yeah so far it's you know touch with the results we've had back have been fantastic the number of fish that we've released um, have led us believe that anything has has it's affected them too you know negatively and they seem to have resumed normal behavior quite quickly um, and similarly, we have seen evidence of spawning in several of the fish that we've released. Um, uh, sorry, several, getting ahead of myself, a couple. So entering spawning ground, because, you know, it's, uh, you only get one shot of doing this and the information you get back. And it gives you several parameters, albeit incredibly param powerful uh, parameters. We, yeah, we're happy with how, how the fish have sort of behaved post-release. We, we would assume it to be relatively normal. Because I did hear about some the odd. I mean, it's hard to prove, isn't it? But like the odd the odd shark fishing charter that would uh, inverted commas accidentally catch tuna, but it's it's difficult to police, I suppose. Yeah, it is difficult, and I think um, yeah. For the record, Jack kind of gave bunny ears there. Um, <laughs> accidentally catches them, and you know, uh, it's not for us to judge whether that whether that goes on or how much of it goes on. Um, but the reality is that sharks and tuna do eat the same stuff sometimes um and i know it does happen but similarly i think the, the point remains that you know this is this is a new animal here um there are genuine interactions between fishes both commercial and recreational and bluefin tuna um and i think the desire at the moment is just to make sure that 
those interactions are as yeah as sympathetic to the animal's health as possible so if people can release tuna in good health then that's absolutely the thing they should be doing and additionally the mandate is uh, it's obviously illegal to target them but if people do catch them by accident and the uh, the kind of the interaction doesn't go so well for the tuna and they end up uh, with with a mortality then they should that mortality should be immediately reported to the marine management organization and what tends to happen in those instances and it is rare uh, we maybe get three or four of those a year the, we so the university of exeter CFAS take it as an opportunity to actually conduct a, a post-mortem and actually we can take an awful lot of samples from a, from a deceased animal that we can then use in future research. We, we try not to waste opportunities and and yeah so that them's the rules I suppose. <laughs> and do you think I mean I guess this is long road now but do you think there'll ever be scope for a commercial fishery of these fish in Britain or is it even is even that a good idea or a bad idea? Uh, it's not really a conversation we'd ever weigh in on. I think that the the key point is that we, as a nation, feed back into the whole management process. Um, so bluefin tuna are managed as a, as two spatially discrete stocks by the sorry an eastern stock and a western stock in the Atlantic, uh, and the management is done by the International Commission for Conservation of Atlantic Tunas. And that organization works by each member state so if on eu for instance morocco america because these fish transcend international boundaries and as long as each you know nation has bluefin tuna off their coasts conducts in valid and useful research and feeds it back into a stock assessment process ultimately any commercial fishery is managed by icap not by the uk uh, or you know the eu or any other nation as long as we can feed back into the process and make sure that actually the fishery is managed sensibly and what i mean by that you know the, the the total catches set for a season are reasonable and not uh, outline as scientific advice then that's the best thing we could do so i think that like i say we, we won't be lobbying for, for one way or the other down here um our, our, our position is very neutral and it's it's yeah. really, it's about ecology um and making sure that there's a few more of these fish swimming around in, in the water than well before we started but what attracted you to, to study these fish uh i guess i just find them fascinating yeah I mean, <laughs> that's I good if you said they were boring general. yeah <laughs> yeah exactly yeah yeah exactly uh yeah they're fascinating i've been fortunate to work with some fantastic people along the way and i think that always helps with these things and um there's still so much more to learn i suppose one of the extra fascinating things with bluefin is that you can't ever ignore the human element. So, um, you know, there's, there are all these other interesting questions that go alongside the actual the ecology of the animal. But I suppose one of the bottom lines is that there's there's few things in my mind that be, being out at sea and seeing a big group of bluefin feeding up on a bait ball, it is truly a kind of blue planet moment. And um, I'm very fortunate that the, the path that uh, it's taken me is, allows me to see that every now and again. And incidentally that, you know, we're talking about, uh, I'm, I'm talking to you from Falmouth at the moment, and, um, you know, I can see that from, from a short boat ride from, from the harbour down here, which is, which, you know, a lot of second, third generation Cornishmen have never seen in their lives before. So it's, it's a truly fascinating spectacle. Do they, do they come close in then, or are they mainly kind of more further out? Yeah, no, they, uh, they have been known to come within sort of several metres of water. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, so we actually, in addition to the sort of uh, fisheries-based interactions we get reported every year, we also get to strandings. So bluefin that have ended up on a beach, and it could even be. So essentially, the, the backstory to some of those are 
the fish are in fantastic condition. We sadly haven't been able to go and sample any of them or collect post-mortem, but you know, the physical appearance isn't of a fish that's been caught in a net or anything else that you can deduce from a picture anyway. But we, every year we've been sending pictures of yeah, two meters and um, yeah, I guess they come in and they chase prey, but typically when we're, we're fishing for them, it could be anywhere from sort of one to 10 miles offshore. But again, that very much varies with location. Other places in the world, if you wanted to go and catch or target tuna, you, you might have to go an awful lot further. And I suppose it really just reflects the nature of, of how the bait fish in, in kind of off the southwest behaves. I did see a, um, well, I suppose it must have been a bait ball, but it was off Gillingvase Beach in February. I don't know if that would be too late for tuna. Would you still get them then? I think um, it's the tail end of what we'd call the season, but um, I think that uh, we, uh, we have had reports in February, sort of bona fide, checked out um, records of bluefin. Uh, so no, it's, it's totally reasonable. And I think, you know, it goes back to the kind of their ability to stay in cold places. We have, we do definitely have records of fish up at this latitude around that time of year. And you'd imagine if there was enough food here to be able to sustain them, then then they might, um, they might still be here. But typically our kind of, um, what we're understanding now is the kind of the season in inverted commas runs from sort of about now uh, until sort of November, December. Um, and outside of, of those times, you know, you might find a few, um, but maybe not quite the amount that you might see on a, on a, on a kind of peak season day. If you will. Right. Because I saw there were definitely common dolphins there, but then every now and again, you just see a big, I mean, and maybe it's me dreaming of tuna, but I just would see the odd big splash <laughs> and I'm just looking through my bins and it's just like, oh, what's that one? And you just don't, yeah. you just don't know. And maybe I think I was wishing too hard for tuna, but. No, I think often, often that is all you see. And um, I, uh, before I started uh, my PhD at the University of Exeter, I worked for um, uh, Marine Discovery, who are a wildlife tour operator boat down in, um, in Penzance. It's Hannah and Duncan Jones run that. We'd see bluefin and, um, you know, we'd get quite excited, but they're the worst species to encounter on a wildlife watching trip because you kind of see a splash, you're like, oh, it's a bluefin tuna, and you start talking about them. And that splash that maybe no one saw is, is all you get to see. So, you know, this, you know, this is an incredible animal swimming around that, you know, people would be really interested in, but actually, unlike dolphins and whales and stuff, they don't have to come to the surface to breathe. So, you know, you're, kind of, um, <laughs> you're left wanting at the end of it. They're teasers. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Teasers. What, what's the success rate out of interest? Like if you're doing these tours, like how often would you see tuna? It's hugely variable. So we have now done, the Spanish UK project, we've probably done about 50 days at sea. Um, so bear in mind in that instance, we are out specifically to find tuna. and We'd move around all day looking. Of those approximately 50 days, there's only a handful of days when we've not seen tuna. So maybe maybe two or three days that, that we, we just simply haven't seen any fish at all. Oh, that's um, a great success rate then. Yeah, it is. I mean, catching them is very different. So, yeah. um, uh, and it's actually it's much harder to catch tuna. You know, it's not simply a case of seeing them and you'll catch them, but we don't need to talk about that now. But it's, um, when they're around, it's, you know, they're everywhere. And it's, it's really quite remarkable uh, to the point where there was a day at sea I think perhaps it was in the 2018 season and we were out looking for tuna and we could see them everywhere. You know, we counted hundreds of them that day. Uh, and I had a, a call from Hannah and Duncan in, in Mounts Bay telling me they, you know, 
we should go over there because there are tuna everywhere. And I was like, there's tuna everywhere here. And then <laughs> someone else called me from the north coast and said, there are tuna everywhere. And this is, you know, simultaneous to us seeing them on the south coast. So that, I think there are periods of time when there is a phenomenal amount of there. But then these fish are capable of moving a couple of hundred kilometers in a single day. So one day could be, you know, lots and lots of fish around. And then the following day, there could be very few around. But I mean, the other big caveat here is that we're obviously relying on seeing a, a non-air breathing animal on the surface. So it's uh, there could just be days when they're simply not. Up. They're remarkable creatures. And I'm sure many people probably don't even realise that we've got these, you know, 800 pound or whatever it is, tuna swimming off our coastline. So I think it's absolutely fantastic. And I could waffle about fish with you all day, but I think I better uh, cut the podcast at some point. So look, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you, Tom. Yeah, thanks very much for having me, Jack. And, and similarly, if, if people want to learn more about the project, um, then the website is www.tunnus, which is T-H-U-N-N-U-S-U-K.org. And incidentally, if people have seen a splash of the surface, and, you know, it could just be you all kind of like slightly bigger thrash in the, in the midst of dolphins, and they think they've seen a tuna, then, then you can also submit sightings via the website as well. And we, we're really grateful for any bit of information that people can offer up. And additionally, we, we run um, a public event beginning of every year to try and share some of the information that we've, we've gathered as part of the project. Um, and we'll share information by that via the website as well. Um, so if people are interested, then you can find out some stuff by the web, but also you can come and, um, you can come and sort of meet the team and find out what's been going on uh, down in sunny Cornwall in February. Yeah, it's a beautiful place in Feb, just pissing it down with rain most of the time, isn't it? <laughs> exactly, <But. laughs> yeah. Well, look, take care, buddy. Cheers, Jack. Nice one, mate. I find it just amazing that there could be tuna the size of a car swimming around the Cornish coastline or indeed the British coastline. So absolutely phenomenal stuff. Now that brings me on to Nature Reserve of the Week. And I was trying to think, what Nature Reserve could you do for tuna? Because it's just really uh, the, the sea. I thought, well, that's quite a big Nature Reserve to cover. So I'm going to be a little bit more specific and I'm going to talk about AK Wildlife Cruises. This is going to sound like they're paying me to say this. I'm not. I've just picked one at random, but this was one based in Falmouth. Now, it's run by Captain Keith. AK Wildlife Cruises is one of many that run out of Cornwall. Now, this one is based in Falmouth. Now, the boat itself has indoor seating area with modern toilet facilities and open outdoor seating. And I think this is fairly typical of most of these sort of wildlife cruises. If you go around most of the harbours and ports in Cornwall now, there's something like this that you can go out and see wildlife that ordinarily would be very difficult for the public to see. Now depending on the time of year there's a whole host of possible species that you could see though summer is probably going to be the most productive with basking sharks, sunfish, barrel jellyfish, uh, minke whales, multiple species of dolphin like whitebeak, bottlenose and common not to mention seabirds like manx shearwater, puffins, northern divers, razorbills and of course, if you're very lucky, you might see tuna as well. Now, if it's too rough to go out to sea, you can go up the Carrick Roads, exploring the creeks with seals, deer, inshore cetaceans, some of the dolphins and porpoises come in good numbers. And of course, there are lots of waders along there as well. So there's always an option to go see wildlife on these little boat trips. One tip just I would say from going on, I've not been on this particular boat trip, but there are lots, I've been on others similar to it. Always take warm clothes and waterproofs, even if it's if it's hot and sunny, because you're going to get soaked. Uh, so well, not all the time. It depends how fast they go and how choppy it is. But it's always better to have warm clothes. You can take them off. There's nothing worse than being out at sea, 
and you're cold because there's nothing you can do about it. You're out there. Likewise, if you're hungry or you're thirsty, you're stuck. So, you you know, make sure you take something to eat, take some water, uh, particularly in the colder months. And binoculars are always worth a shout because the boat isn't going to go uh, necessarily right up to these animals. Sometimes the dolphins will bow wave, which is lovely, but a lot of these animals can be shy and they don't want most responsible boat owners are not going to ride right up to them and, and disturb them. So I've picked on AK Wildlife Cruises for this one, but pretty much any of the Cornish wildlife watching uh, boat trips are well worth a look. There's such a plethora of species you could potentially see. So if you're down in Cornwall, head out on a boat, and it is like Blue Planet sometimes. Some of the amazing wildlife spectacles that you can see are just absolutely unreal. Hopefully you've enjoyed today's podcast. As always, you can check out the highlights on the YouTube channel Wildlife Exposed TV where you can actually see the videos of me chatting to the guests. There is a Twitter account, at TitBearded, so please give that a follow. Um, and if you're enjoying the podcast, let me know. Any questions, any kind of feedback, get in touch. I'm always happy to hear all that. This has been the Bearded Tits Podcast. I've been your host, Jack Perks, and I will catch you in the next one. Cheers.